Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to a Believe Podcast. I'm your host, John Hoisenstein, and this is The Guitar Life. My special guest today is an excellent musician and guitarist and a top recording engineer from Australia, Peter Walker. He's recorded many well-known artists, many well-known bands, and he's invented all sorts of interesting things that have to do with recording music and playing music. Peter Walker. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You're coming in stereo, wow. loud and clear. In that case, I'll... Click over here and click over there. I mean, it's supposed to be <laughs> stereo. <laughs> How are you oh, doing? Mate. Um, I can imagine. Look, we're fine here. Me is fine. You know, we're alive, we're healthy, um, and we're both gainfully employed. So all of that's fine. Manufacturing, on the other hand, is proving to be an absolute pain in the ass. Um, Delays, and we're talking about virtual yeah. Jeff here. Yeah, that's virtual Jeff is an automated uh, whammy bar for uh, oh my god for multi purposes that just can't even be imagined at this point. Well, especially <laughs> with things like you know Fender releasing the Stratocaster version of the Acoustasonic, you know, the first Stratocaster that admittedly in a semi-acoustic Stratocaster without a whammy bar on it. And the guy who designed it, Brian Schroedferger, who I met and was all over as like a rash at NAM when we had it on the Telecaster version. Yeah. You know, he's begging us to send him samples because it's an ideal companion for all the people who object to having a Stratocaster without a whammy bar on it. You know, he's seen it. Their chief product tester tried it out. You know, he brought over Tim, what's his name, who designs all their pickups. He brought over, he came back like five times with various people from Fender to show them our product. Now, it's I'm sure it's hot. not my, you know, good looks or <laughs> that. Oh, man, I fell in love with that thing the second I realized what it was. Yeah, well, you and you haven't even seen the new, I mean, the whammy is much the same, but the the stomp boxes, you know. Hopefully the world hasn't seen it yet either, because I want I want to see it when everybody else sees it. <laughs> How's it going there, man? Are there it's any gigs amazing. I played yesterday actually at a a, a yacht club in the Dana Point, which is about uh, twenty minutes south of here, and it was delightful. People were very very uh, receptive to hearing live music, which has been. Uh, sort of neglected uh, or avoided, I would say, for the last yeah. six months, yeah. as you know. And uh, I got out yesterday and I played. It was really, really yeah. fun. Yeah. The bass player, you'd get a kick out of this guy, Jason Brown. Uh, he played with a group called Hank Three, Hank Williams' uh, uh -huh. grandson. Hank Three. Because there yeah. was a Hank Jr., uh, you know, yeah. and this is Hank Three. And this guy played bass for Hank 3 for 10 years. So he's got the slap and the angst and all the stuff going on. And just the two of us played, and it was just like creative freedom city, yeah. you know? We did all kinds of stuff, yeah, country, blues, whatever we well, wanted. Ray's, Ray's in Perth, obviously, you know, and Perth is... Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to get Ray yeah. on the show. Yeah. 
for sh- for sure. Well, he's he's yeah. doing gigs every second night of the week, you know, because they've been pretty open there for months. There, there's practically no lockdown yeah. at all there. Um, Australians know how to do it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Melbourne, on the other hand, was a catastrophe because they had a they employed private security guards because the, anybody coming in had to go into quarantine in a hotel for 14 days. And they, instead of using the police or the AD, there's Australian Defence Force, they employed private security guards who were basically hired in 10 minutes with two minutes of training. And that's led to yeah. the massive outbreak. Victoria went into complete lockdown, curfew, eight o'clock at night curfew. They've had, we've had, 53 deaths in New South Wales in total, and they've had 760 in Victoria in the last month or so. They're, they're on top of it now, but, you know, Australia in total doesn't even reach three digits except for Victoria. You know? So, Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a reality that uh, a lot of people don't get here in America. I mean, I mean, they just uh, they just think they're beyond it, you know. Oh, it's it, it doesn't exist. It's not going to get me. It's not really. You hear these stories about uh, you know family get-togethers where twelve people get together and they're all you know not wearing masks. Nobody's uh, observing any kind of you know distancing and that that kind of conscientious respect, right? And then everybody gets sick and half of them die. You know, <laughs> it's terrible. It's. <laughs> It's, it's really look, sad. We we obviously yeah. only get the sensational bits on our news, you know, from America. But yeah, but I I I know that for every one nutter that we see on our TV screens here, there's at least a million exactly like that, you know, if not twenty million. Yeah. You know? Well, even amongst people that are conscientious, people get uh, sick. You know, they they catch it and. Uh, I belong to a meditation group, and everybody's very nice and sweet and soft-spoken. The other day, I found out some of the people got it and died. It was I just said, you know, this thing is so potent. People should really, really like take it seriously, or it's never going to go away until everybody's half wiped out anyway. Well, we get all the people, <laughs> like the other night, I was looking at the news from America, and here was this guy at a protest saying, it's all a hoax, there's no such thing. Then the next person said it's just the flu, and I'm relying on Darwin, John. You know, those people yeah. are going to get it and die, and will go back to sanity. But I just don't think that's going to work quickly enough. Yeah, no, it's it's too much of a rub off. There's, it's too uh, it's, it's too easy for somebody to, you know, for them to open the floodgates and somebody's got it, and he walks into a movie theater and to. Uh, you know, into a concert and affects several people. It's just a very, and people have to really be conscientious or it can, it can stab yeah. you, you know. Hey, hey, I want to talk about you and uh, some of your history, if you don't Go mind. Right what, uh, what, where, are you, where are you from in Australia? What's your hometown? I'm from Perth, but I'm actually... You're from, from yeah. Perth? I grew up in Perth. We emigrated from Ireland to Perth when I was about eight. And so, wow! You're a first I'm a, generation, an almost first generation Perth person. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Out of eight years, I get it. I, I messed up there. Yeah, I'm, You're an, I'm immigrant. an immigrant, like <laughs> practically everybody else in Australia, and and everyone else in the world. Yeah. Everybody's from somewhere else. <laughs> uh, you know, I love Perth. I lived there for. Uh, a few years, you know, and uh, there's nothing like that uh, that sea breeze that comes off yeah, the Indian the Ocean, you know. Um, my my brother Mark, uh, you know, he lives in uh, West Australia, and uh, he says when he gets off of the you know airplane when he's been in America and visiting, he gets up and he just puts his arms out like this and goes, "Ah, I'm yeah. back," you know, because the air is so uh, so different than the. Uh, what we have here in America, which is a, it's a lot more uh, cakey. And, you know? and look, there's there's even some of that. You know, I've I've lived now most of my adult life in Sydney, um, 
and even I now go back to Perth and think, what a place to live, you know. If I had children, that's where I'd raise them. If they ever dropped the bomb, mm. that's where I'm going. Um, Perth is a, is a it's a lovely place, and I was able to have a great childhood for the time that I was there. So I'm eternally grateful. There's there's downsides. One is the isolation, but in my experience, in in things in creative pursuits like music or arts sometimes isolation is actually a good thing because you still receive the influences but you're not embedded within the influences so mm. you hear all you hear well all the great things but you can't go down and see them every night so you never actually steal their licks and and they become a part of you you're influenced by their licks rather than just being reliant on, 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 you know, recreating them. Sure. Yeah. Wow. I, so you're talking about influences. So who are some of your influences uh, when you're growing up? I mean, how, how long did you uh, stay in Perth before you actually went to the East coast? Uh, I was 17 when I left. I mean, my, my Okay. Yeah, my Very real young. influences go back probably. Um, my mother taught Ray, my brother, uh, uh, one song on guitar, which Ray and then my brother brother taught me, and that was "Who's Sorry Now," which is an old. I can't. Even, I don't even know where the song comes from, but the first song I learned on right. guitar went C. E7, A7, D7, F, C. So I didn't learn a 12 bar. I learned a, an actual progression. And then yeah. Ray bought. Yeah, an important well, one. <laughs> uh, Ray built a record player, and the first two records that we had were a Chet Atkins record and a Django Reinhardt record. And, and I, I actually heard Tommy, uh, Tommy Emmanuel, not that long ago, I saw something on YouTube where he said he had much the same experience in hearing Chet Atkins and thought that that's what you did when you played guitar. You played a rhythm part and a bass part and the lead part all at the same time. Yeah. So I had that, that, that very same influence. It, it doesn't, you know. I, it's a more holistic uh universal sort of approach to playing music, uh, studying the bass, hearing the middle chordal part, having the melody on top, rather than just like a lead player playing single notes a lot. You were more of a complete, uh, you know, it visual you uh, harmonic movement artist and musician. it makes you aware of the yeah, pulse sure. and, you know. And Chet was so yes. good at that. And, and the other <laughs> side was Django. Chet's you know, amazing. From Django... The, the whole minor blues thing and the passion, um, you know, hard to resist someone sure. like Django doing that sort of stuff. Um, so. so, so as far as schooling is concerned, because I'm interested in the, uh, you know, in the technical side that you have uh, able to, uh, you know, develop electronic ideas and, uh, you know, scientific electronic experiment, that sort of thing, and hobbies, and then music all you know, all of it uh, sort of uh, sort of complementing each other in this case, <laughs> in the Peter yes. Walker case. Um, <laughs> look, happy accidents, John. Um, I finished last year of high school. I'd been playing in a school band. They had a, a at, at the end of year thing, they had a, uh, a band from over east, as you say, in Perth, because everywhere is over east if you live in Perth. Um, they were a, a New Zealand sort of Melbourne band. A few weeks after school finished, there was a knock on the door and there was this band because they'd played at the, the formal thing and they'd obviously seen me play and it was literally the, hey, kid, do you want to join a band? So the next day we rehearsed and that night I was playing at the Latin Quarter until half past four in the morning. Um, 
<laughs> and within a couple of months. Good story. I love within it. Within a couple of months, so, I was touring. Yeah, but that wasn't the bakery yet, right? When did the bakery happen? The, the, that was the bakery. That It became the bakery? That, or yeah, that was they, they came to me as the bakery, a four-piece band. They had a sax player, Bernie Payne. But he, right. the very first run of hair was just about to start in Sydney because this is uh, mid-late 60s we're talking about here. Um, and Bernie got the call saying, do you want to do hair for a three-month run? So, of course, Bernie left, leaving them short, and, and that was where they thought you got the, I gig. got the gig. Yeah. I'm looking at a picture of uh, you in... Uh in the bakery and you you guys uh geez sorry about the hair. you really looked apart you look like rock stars that's for darn sure you got a, a, a an australian version of the grateful dead meets uh the band i guess <laughs> but you had a uh, very long hair and a beard and uh very sharp looking glasses and a mustache yeah you're looking pretty pretty rock and roll there jerry garcia Peter Walker in the bakery. That was 1971 from Perth, West Australia. This is a Believe podcast. I'm John Hoysenstrom, your host. This is The Guitar Life. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe. Yeah, look, it was um, because we were all desperate for relevance of some sort, you know, with the latest American albums or British, but usually American albums. Yeah. would arrive and we'd rush around to somebody's place and you'd listen to this and go, wow, you know, what are those guys doing and how are they? Doing? Well, what's the happy accident? You know, the career in the recording business, is that your, I mean, you, you became very, a uh, very good technician in the studio as an engineer. How, how did that, uh, how did you morph into that? You know, you spent like six years or something like that with the bakery and then started the recording. Yeah, right? I, I, the seeds were planted pretty early. Um, shortly after we came to Perth, Ray and myself and my mother were in a TV shop buying a TV, um, which was also an accordion store. Can you believe it? They sold TVs and accordions. Well, that's a joke uh, about to be developed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and the owner of the store cleverly had a music school where he would teach all the kids accordion, but he also had a radio show on Sundays, half an hour on 6PR. Um, okay. And they had there were two guitars in the store, and Ray picked up one of the guitars, you know, after asking permission, and played a little bit. And Tony, the store owner, immediately recognized talent. So, you know, and then Ray gave the guitar to me and I played a little. So instantly, although we would ne had never been to the, the music school, we were invited onto the, the show. So on a Sunday afternoon, Ray and I rolled up to 6PR, walked into this studio. This is the 60s, remember? You know, wood, glass. There was the control room up to the right looking down on us. And we sat down in front of a, a, a classic U47 microphone. The engineer up in the booth pointed at us. The red light came on and we played our little ditties. And that's where I got my love of the, you know, the adrenaline, uh, the whole deal of the performance. We got invited back multiple weeks. Ray was yeah. also a, a real tinkerer with electronics. So I would hold the pliers as the heat sink while he was soldering in the transistors. And because he was my big brother and I idolize him and I still do. 
Well, well how could you not? He's such a gentleman, right? And and what a guy! What a guy and what a great player. Um, yeah. So I was always great interested music. in electronics, and I was always interested in recording. And when I finished, when Bakery finally broke up, uh, a friend had started building a studio. I was handy with soldering and stuff, so I wired up the studio. Then I became the maintenance engineer because um, I was mm -hmm. doing sessions as, as a guitar player, you know, around town. Yeah, you were reinforcing some of the uh, product. <laughs> Cheating, in other words. So I was a maintenance engineer for about a week, and then a band who were in there who I'd known from my touring days, it just wasn't working out with the engineer they were working with, and they asked the studio owner, could I do the engineering? Um, so again, I got to sit behind the desk and started recording albums, having not much of an idea of what, I was doing, but bluffed my way through that. So that got me into the recording business. I, I never swept the floors, um, but I obviously knew all the equipment because I'd wired most of it up and, and mm -hmm. was very keen on that sort of stuff. That's fantastic. It's a, a, a slow but deliberate evolution <laughs> that... Uh, More of an accidental evolution. Destiny. <laughs> Destiny is playing a, yeah. a hardcore role in this one. <laughs> yes. So, so you know, influences style. You talked about that. Uh, study and practice. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, I'm. It seems it seems like it would have been difficult to keep the guitar going with the, the amount of recordings that you were doing. I mean, I'm reading about uh, some of your history here. Uh, Daddy Cool, uh, John Williamson, who's a fantastic folk singer. I just love his stuff. And uh, but but this is the thing that really surprised me uh, when you're talking about Elvis Costello, David Bowie, uh, Police, Duran Duran. How did you uh, mix with those guys? I guess when they were in Sydney, I guess that's what happened. Yeah. Right. All of those guys were, you know, touring, obviously. And at, at various times, um, David Bowie was doing a, a feature film, which I can't remember. So the call came, the surprising thing was the call came to the studio where I did most of my engineering, which was Trafalgar, which was a, a relatively small studio, not, not a corporate studio, um, much mm -hmm. larger studios, EMI, uh, places like that. But Trafalgar probably had the, the first actual monitoring, you know, properly set up acoustic room. Most of the recording rooms in Australia at the time were, were hangovers from the 50s. So they were mm -hmm. square rooms with acoustic tiles on them. Trafalgar had a proper, like a Westlake kind of room in miniature. Um, how mm -hmm. David Bowie heard about that, I don't know, but the call came through. He was doing that film and needed some mixes done for the film. So he came in and I wasn't, a, I wasn't particularly keen on David Bowie and didn't like the music much. And at the time, although I didn't know the man, didn't, wasn't much impressed by the persona that that came. You weren't overwhelmed, thank God. Yeah. But <laughs> but he came in. He was an absolute gentleman. He knew his studio craft intimately. Um, I only worked with him for four or five days, doing some mixing. But it totally turned me around 180 degrees. I thought this guy knows his act. There's, there, there's no fake persona there. You know, he was a very good, good guy to work with. And he definitely knew his way around a recording studio. So Duran Duran, cool. similar kind of deal. They were recording the uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger album, which they'd done some of um, that studio in the Palmas. That, anyway, they were recording at various places around the world and they were in Sydney for three or four weeks. Um, I got the call. Uh, so I sat in there and recorded with them. One of my not most pleasurable experiences, but again, you know, um, good experience. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. Elvis. Bit of, debau bit of debauchery going on there, huh? Well, the... the the tragedy of that was was emphasized because um, 
not too long before that, um, I was in the control room with Charles, the studio owner. We were working on a couple of tracks and the receptionist came in and said, oh, there's some guy, some country guy, you know, he'd like to come in and see the control room. Um, you know, is that okay? So in came this guy with his guitar and hi, what's your name? Tommy. Nice to meet you, Tommy. Oh, yeah, you play guitar. Yeah, I want to be a, you know, an acoustic guitar player. Oh, great. You know, play us something. So he takes out the guitar and plays a piece. <laughs> yeah, hey, you're talking about Tommy Emmanuel. I'm talking right? about Tommy Emmanuel. <laughs> oh, he's a genius. Tommy was playing like he is now back. I got a similar story. Ago, you know? Yeah, I got a similar story. I was playing in Sydney. I was playing at the basement. Uh, but we were there the following you know, day after Tommy Emmanuel was there. And uh, since we got into town a day early when we were traveling, uh, hey, this guy named Tommy Emmanuel is playing at uh, the basement, you know, so we uh, went in and he was playing a Telecaster and he had all his friends from, you know, all these guys, drums and bass and all these guys playing. And he was jamming. I go, yeah, it's kind of a, an off spin of a, you know, L.A. kind of a, you know, fusion kind of a jam. And I, I wasn't that impressed, really. And then he kicks the... Uh, the band off the stage, right? He pulls out an acoustic guitar. He plays for about five minutes, and I go, don't let the other guys back on the stage. You just keep playing that acoustic guitar because that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> he just blew me away. I, I was totally caught off guard. Charles yeah. donated a, a four or five days of studio time. I provided the tape and the engineering, and we did the first demos for Tommy. Um, which oh he then God. hawked around for, I don't know, 10 years trying to get a contract, you know, because he'd walk in and they'd, you know, he'd go, yeah, I'm a solo acoustic guitar player. And they'd say, so, you know, who sings? Um, <laughs> yeah, he, he's doing quite well now that he's over here in Nashville, I think. I see him all the time on YouTube doing shows, so he must be busy. Oh, he is, man. He's, yeah. he's, he's one of the busiest Good touring musicians him. around the world, you know. And, and, and he's a phenomenon, you know. Um, yeah. He's wonderful. He's, just, he's good friends with Kirk, you know, the guy that owns that music store here in Laguna Beach, I, Kirk Sand. Yeah. He, makes, yeah. he makes beautiful guitars, and they're good friends. Yeah. Now, these are, these are people that you're glad to have crossed paths with along the way. You know, same with Ian Mossy, you know, in Colts. Yeah, no, we're going to talk about him a little bit. There's just a couple other bands before we get off the track of you being an engineer. You know, I see like Midnight Oil and Cold Chisel yeah. and Hoodoo Gurus. These are all the biggest Australian groups. Somehow you're in there engineering with them, huh? Is that how that goes? Yeah, um, somewhat similar. You know, the fact that I'd been on tour with Bakery for years meant that I'd I'd done plenty of gigs with these guys, so there was a certain familiarity there. And in those days... They were approachable, yeah. In those days, there was a lot of um, bands were very worried about the studio and what might happen once they hit the studio. Some of that with Cold Chisel was they had no experience in a studio, so they were pretty terrified. Um, with Midnight Oil, they'd already done an album which had died badly and and it didn't sound particularly good um they didn't want a producer and an engineer telling them how to get a guitar sound etc etc so i had a little bit mm -hmm. of an edge in that they knew i was a guitar player you know that that, that was where i came from um and whether that tipped the balance <laughs> or not i i don't know And the bakery, <laughs> another uh, 1971 recording. Man, you get a good sound. 
Peter knows what he's doing in the studio, no doubt. This might be a good time for me to do my uh, Plexiderm uh, run here. Plexiderm, what a great product. I sure could have used it when I was in my teens. Summer's over, fall's here. The changing temperatures, changing winds, changing conditions can have a nasty effect on your skin. I bet you all uh, can relate to that. You should try Plexiderm. All you need is a 10-minute treatment. You could look 10 years younger. It's a clinically tested product, this serum. No danger in applying it to your skin. You should try it to get the right kind of changes you might desire for your looks. Mm -hmm. Visibly reduces wrinkles, fine lines, and even under eye bags in minutes. And the results will last for hours. This is a call to action. You can try a six application trial pack for just $14.95 with free shipping when you visit triplexiderm.com and use the code BLEAV, that's B-L-E-A-V. Again, that's triplexiderm.com and use the code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, and check out. Make those wrinkles, lines, and under eye bags disappear with Plexiderm. help <laughs> yeah it certainly would have helped so that meant yeah. uh i i got to work with those kind of you know all three of those bands are all very guitar based bands yeah and great entertainers all and, those people. yeah and you know one of the most wow. enjoyable albums i did was with midnight oil because um the producer was a guy named les karski who was also a guitar player but he was English and had a, an incredible sense of humor. So that album, we laughed from day one to, to the finish. We just laughed all day doing that album and, and it was the most enjoyable. Um, so that, that, that's a kind of, I love engineering. You know, I get dragged into production, but I love engineering. I, I only have one more question about this particular uh, conversation, uh, you know, where we're at here is like the endurance that you must, you know, um, you know, where, where do you get that endurance? Cause I know I, I go into the studio sometimes and I never want to go back, you know, cause I feel like I've stripped myself of every iota of energy <laughs> that I possibly could have trying to get it out, trying to get the thing finished. Right. And you just kind of like burn, you know, and then you just go, that's it. I can't do any better. But how do you get that, uh, that resilient, uh, you know, steadfast and not until the ship is gloriously victorious, you know, <laughs> finish the product and make it great. I mean, getting to the finish line is tr a tremendous accomplishment, wouldn't you say? Uh, definitely. I mean, it, it's people perhaps, well, almost certainly don't realize exactly what recording was like in those days. It, you know, now I have a laptop with Pro Tools on it that places a $5 million studio, you know, I can make an album in my kitchen if I want. In those days, I did the Cold Chisel album. Um, I mixed it. The, the record company rang up on a Thursday and said, we've got the Cold Chisel on, on the support act for Foreigner. We need the album on Monday. So I started mixing that <laughs> album on Friday. Um, and stayed in the studio, grabbing a couple of hours sleep on, on the control room floor and mixed it nonstop till Monday. Now this was before automation. There was no automation. And so it was all manually mixed. You had to go back and forth and back and, go forth. back and forth, yeah. do every move for every pass. You know? oh. And when you change textures, you'd have to edit the two track and you'd never know if it would work until after you destroyed the previous setup. That, that, that was hard work, but, the question was <laughs> it's insanity what are you well, talking about <laughs> insanity but you know I, I i did the same thing with things like air supply you know like yeah. if you listen to the r's in the back of lost in love which was recorded in trafalgar um okay i set up a, a an ms pair for 
for stereo and mm-hmm. basically put them across. I think we'd gone 24 track by then. I put them on about 12 or 15 tracks in stereo, then bounced that down onto two track. Um, I just grabbed. Make, make in, it easier to mix. Yeah. Grabbed the end of a phrase where they sang lost in love and held it. So I bounced mm-hmm. it down about a second of R at a time and kept dropping in on the two track to make up a two minute stretch of continuous R and then relay that back onto the multi-track. <laughs> Did you use scissors or a razor blade? Uh, all all uh, dropping in. I disabled the bias. Uh, I changed the bias a little to make the drop-in softer. But that was the kind of crazy stuff you did because you were after. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's like any musician. You're after something. Mm. You want to hear it yeah. sound. You push your fingers. You push your brain. You push the strings. You push the amp because you know what you want to hear. And, and, and that's the only thing that, that, that kept up my endurance is I'm, I'm a dog with a bone, you know. Uh, you have more respect for me than you know now that I've heard some of this. It's incredible. I'm, I'm totally uh, blown away. Uh, you just mentioned equipment a little bit. I see pictures of you playing a 335. Was that your guitar of choice? Always the old Gibson ES-335? Um, Look, it, it, it became the guitar of choice. I played my brother's Maton guitar um, when I first joined Bakery. Um, the, the singer had a, a, a 175 that he lent me, that I, a Gibson 175. Uh, a few months into Bakery, Brian Bercy from Musgroves rang up Ray, my brother, and said, is Peter looking for a guitar? This guy's bought in a 335 that he bought off me two years ago, and it's sat under the bed ever since. So that was in 68. So it was a 66 335, the classic, you know, the Larry Carlton model. Yeah, yeah, with the squares. Yeah, the square uh, inlay, right? Block inlay. I went to the store and looked at it, and it looked like a guitar because it was that beautiful tobacco sunburst. And to me, that's what guitars (laughs) looked like. So I said, I'll have it, you know. I think I played it for five seconds. So there was no deep or profound, wow, this is the guitar for me or this is a classic. Beautiful. That was the guitar I had and I kept it until seven or eight years ago when it was stolen, unfortunately. Oh, you told me that. It's out there somewhere. It's going to circle back. Whoever has it is is sorry they have it because it's like acid in their hands every time they pick it up. Uh, I hate those kind of stories. Yeah. So, so you're you're inventing um, uh, you're inventing pedals and stuff. Let's get into this with with Ian. So, you're making some sort of pe- pedals that uh, you know that uh, do something for Ian Moss's guitar sound. What 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 is that all about? Well, when when I did the Chisel album, which would be seventy eight, um, Ian was desperate for some kind of presence boost, and I'd seen a simple single transistor circuit. So I said, I'll build you one, Ian. Um, so I get it. So I, I built that and then he used that for 15 years or something. He still got it. He actually brought it out and showed it to me about six months ago. And it was like seeing a child you haven't seen in 40 years, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I started building stuff. About eight or nine years ago, Chisel, having broken up in 83 or thereabouts, came back together for the big tour. Um, and Ian rang up because we'd stayed in contact all that time. You know, when we do gigs with, with Chisel, which we did on, on tour, after the gig, you know, we'd sneak back to the hotel room and listen to Chick Corea records, you know, because that was when <laughs> of the Seventh Galaxy and John McGock. Yeah, those are some of my favorite records. All those records. That was that period. So Ian and I listened to that going, wow, what are they doing? Um, So we'd been in touch and he rang me when they they were rehearsing for the tour and said, oh, I'm I'm splitting into multiple amps, but it just doesn't sound right out of one of the amps. Can you come and have a look? So I built him a splitter. Then I figured out he actually needed a, a buffer amp, so I built him a buffer. Then, and this is all over a period of, you know, a month leading up to the big tour, he said, oh, 
can you get me that sort of delay reverb sound you used to get me at Trafalgar in 1978? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, <laughs> son of a baby, Ian, you know, it is, it was like, you know, I don't know, 2005 or something at the time. Um, but the secret of that sound, because obviously in those days, Trafalgar had an EMT gold foil plate, an AKG imitation sort of miniature chamber, and a Grampian spring. That was the entire complement of reverb. So it wasn't any trick device. And for delay, we had a an, an Akai reel-to-reel tape recorder, which could do one and seven-eighths inches per second, so you could get long delays. We had a Revox that we had a, a built a bit of a jig so you could make the tape path longer to get longer delays. We also had the Eventide Harmonizer, the original Eventide Harmonizer. So the secret of that delay sound, which I can reveal in public, and which I, which I built a replica for Ian, was that the signal goes to the tape and gets a single delay. That then goes through the a pitch shifter and gets moved three or four cents. That then recirculates back into the delay. So every successive delay is actually slightly changing pitch. And then that's sent off a pre-fade sender to a very long reverb. So you end up with something that's about a thousand feet wide and about a thousand feet deep, and you can have masses of it, but it never gets in the way of the notes and the music you're playing. You just gave away the secret recipe. I know. The, the invoice <laughs> will be in the mail. Um, ha, people, people are going to listen to that like they've never heard it before. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually built a little box which, which could do that all that routing because it's all in the routing. It's not in the gadgets. I, I want to like just back up just a little bit. Uh, the first thing that you were talking about was the presence... Uh, Enhancer, what was that? How did you t entitle that? Um, yeah, it, the it was a single transistor. It was a roughly a, a, a boost around 3K. And, and I'm just guessing. So whatever the guitar sound was when it was at medium level, say, when he cranked it up, it was still the same guitar sound, only much louder. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, man, that's so hard to get. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, we, I was lucky. I, I, I had a recording studio at my disposal, so I got to try all the sorts of stuff, you know. if you There's a track on, um, I don't know if you'd remember that album, One Long Day. It's a classic. It's one of Don's great songs. But the solo in that, um, the solo starts off my best friend Ian was the assistant at Trafalgar. I had him sitting in front of Ian's amplifier with two um, AKG 451 microphones pointing into his ears because Sennheiser had released the dummy head for recording um, stereo. They, they actually had a physical mm -hmm. model of a head with two capsules buried in the ears and the capsules were recording. I remember those. Yeah, they were recording the reflections off the folds of your ears, which carries important stereo information. So in a moment of madness, I subjected Ian to sitting in front of, uh, my Ian to sit in front of Mossy's 100 watt Marshall yeah. with two mics stuck in his ears to record it. <laughs> <laughs> and you can actually hear it. If you put the headphones on and listen to the start of that solo, there's a kind of presence there that you can't get any other way. But that was the kind of crazy. Did he survive? Did your Ian survive? Uh, <laughs> did he blow his ears only out? Only just. But, but you know, only we, just. We were very lucky, genius, to be able to experiment with that sort of stuff and reverse cabs. <laughs> you know, I'd I'd get one of his oh, cabs God. and push it up against the cab he was using and di out of it and use the cab as the microphone. This is so much fun talking to you. I can't tell you. This is great stuff. So, so here I get this phone call. I just want to bring bring everything up to date. How you and I uh, have become better friends because I I knew you when you were the engineer doing Innocent Bystanders in Perth because I was just happened to be the, the replacement guitarist when you came in. But uh, 
when you got back over here to do the NAM show, uh, National uh, uh, Association of Music Merchants, you actually come all the way from Australia with this invention, this virtual Jeff, which is the whammy bar, the digital uh, automation whammy bar that you invented, which we were talking about at the beginning of the interview here. But you got Ian with you. Yeah. You see? You, you bring along this guy. This guy is like, he's a really, really like world-class singer and entertainer that America doesn't know yeah. about, really. Yeah. Yeah? yeah? So we're at the NAM show, and you got Ian with you. And we're setting up your booth so you can, uh, this is when, you know, you're, you're getting ready to show the world your, your toy, you know. And Ian is warming up. You know, he's sing playing the guitar and he's singing a little bit. And there's this guy standing next to me because I know all about Ian. I lived in Australia and I, I checked him out. You know, I know how great he is. And uh, Ian starts singing Georgia, yeah. you know. That's one of his big, big tunes, you know. And this guy next to me goes, who is that guy? Yeah. And I go, that's Ian Moss, man. He's like a legend in Australia. He can sing like nobody I've ever heard really like that, you know. But I asked Ian, I go, Ian, how did that happen? Didn't you grow up in uh, Alice Springs? How did you become such a great, like, yeah. soul singer and gospel yeah. singer like that? It's just incredible. He said, well, we had a really good radio station in Alice Springs that I used to listen to. And that's what influenced me. You know, I used to listen to Sam Cooke and uh, Al Green. And he starts naming yeah. all the great black. Yeah. Here he's from the very heart of Australia. He's you know? as Australian. If there's a blueprint <laughs> for an Australian, then he's the blueprint, you know. You, you, you know, when I, you, you keep saying Trafalgar, you know. And I bumped into Ian in Trafalgar Gorge. Right. Which is a which is a gorge outside of Alice yeah. Springs. You know, uh, I was I was trekking or, you know, going through the outback, you know, going for a walkabout, as you say. And there was Ian. He was, you know, we, we came face to face, you know, out in the middle of the bush, you know. He was doing the same thing. So, yeah, he's a, he's a bushman, you know. He, he loves yeah. his Australia for and, sure. And look, it's, you know, if, if Ian is both a, 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 a lovely man, but it's... It's almost unfair that someone should be such a monster guitar player and such a beautiful singer all at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a package like they're, you know, that's it. I'm, I'm really I'm, I'm astonished he's not over here uh, as a big artist like Tommy Emmanuel, only in the pop, rock, yeah. you well, know, if, vein. If, if you want to catch up with some current Ian, on his Facebook page, check out him doing My Funny Valentine and angel eyes he's done his own little arrangements of them and it's just him with an acoustic guitar you know so there's there are iso videos that he's doing gonna make me cry yeah right yeah i mean there's, there's basically talent you know it's and and that that's always been my definition of talent someone who can sit right in front of you and just pour it out Listening to a Believe podcast. This is John Hoisenstrom, your host. This is the Guitar Life, and we're talking with Peter Walker. Hope you're enjoying our show. Please subscribe. You know, I'm a backroom guy. I've, I I did a an awful lot of sessions replacing guitar parts on any number of very well known albums in Australia. All you know after midnight when the band had gone home, um, and I've done tours and all that sort of stuff. I, I consider myself a journeyman guitar player, you know, and I haven't basically done it in anger for 25 years. But Ian is one of those classic people who he's lightning in a bottle. And, and I always think my job is to just make sure I position the bottle, you know, to catch the light. <laughs> Got you, yeah. John, he's, he's a saying, wonderful don't man. undersell yourself. You, you just have that monster talent as well on guitar that, you know, when I – when I arrived yeah. at Perth to do that album, I was expecting to have a completely, the band that I'd done a single with six months beforehand, you know, with Diesel, Mark Lazotte on guitar. Yeah. So I roll up and I 
get introduced to the band and I'm looking around thinking, these guys don't look at all familiar. <laughs> yeah, no, we weren't. We had Al Cash and uh, yeah, No one had told myself. me the band had sort of broken apart and it was all new players. So I'm arriving thinking this is going to be cool and then think, well, who are all these people? You know, Al I knew, but you I'd never met. I, I, the minute you played some of those tracks that you had made previously and I heard them, I immediately didn't feel comfortable anymore because I heard what those kids had created and I thought, no, that was magic. Though I'm supposed to step in and, yeah. you know, take over for this guy and he's already a rock star, yeah. you know, so it was really difficult John, for me. Yeah. You played four bars on guitar and immediately I settled down and thought, wow, thank goodness for that. I don't have to worry about the guitar. Now, what about the bass player? <laughs> I waited for three weeks to show you what I could do while you were uh, doing basic I, tracks. Yeah. I know, and I was just so thrilled that you were there because, you know, thank you. I'm a million miles from home and thinking, how am I going to scrape an album out of this? <laughs> yeah, no, they were really nice to me. They understood, you know... <laughs> what they needed to do in order to, uh, you know, get Brett Keezer to actually, you know, produce another record because uh, Mark Lazat was such a big part of the creativity. Um, getting, getting back to the NAMM show, uh, so that was incredible what happened at the NAMM show. You're there for four days demonstrating your uh, digital uh, whammy bar, you know, this miraculous thing that I just think is just genius all the way through, you know, and you win best at the show. Now, that's just like, I had people come up to me and say, that's like getting a Grammy Award, you know? That's like, if you're, yeah, if you're at the NAMM show, you know, and you and you, you equate that to being at the Grammy Award or, you know, the Golden Globe Awards like that, and you win, you know, that's, that, that's the equivalent. So uh, here you are, you're in the manufacturing phase, and it's been a while. It's been since, what, 2017, since you won the... Uh, Right. We had all these so problems, it, you know, finance, tiny company. I mean, we basically it was Ian and myself did all mm -hmm. the lugging and all the setting up and all the planning and everything, you know, for that booth. So we had the world. Protecting your interest. Yeah. We we had and, and essentially Ian was there because I figured out how possibly one could do a, a whammy bar like that. And I did a little video on my phone and, and Ian and I swapped text messages at two o'clock in the morning because I know he's up and he knows I'm up. So I sent it to Ian and he came back and we went, wow, that's cool. Um, so then a few weeks later he said, oh, you know, why don't you? So we just basically formed a partnership. So he, he's my partner in the company. Um, and, and, <laughs> and that's where it all came from was, you know, one late night video. <laughs> I'm waiting with bated breath to see this thing hit the streets because I'm talking to you and, and people out there who are going to be listening to this. And this thing, it's virtual Jeff, you know, a little sly on uh, Jeff Beck, I think. And, uh, course, I you know, it's a, it's a fantastic invention. Yeah, I, I can't wait to see that thing in stores, see it hit the streets because people are going to go nuts when they see that thing. Look, the one thing I hope for... Um, and, and and it occurred to me at the time, but but it's 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 um it's been reinforced any number of times, and and I still pick it up and I play with it. I still have a lot of fun with it, you know. And here I am years later. So if I'm still having fun, but the one thing I hope for is, if you look back through the history of the Whammy Bar, you know, um, mm -hmm. Paul Bigsby, fifty one, fifty two, you know, Leo Fender. 57, 58-ish, Floyd Rose, 78-ish. If you look, they're sort of the high watermarks of the whammy world. There, there are many other kinds and there are many improvements, but they are the kind of evolutionary steps. And if you look at them with, if you, the Bigsby produced a range of, of, of styles and music, you know, Dwayne Eddy and all, all those kind of things stemmed from the Bigsby and then the Fender came along and, you know, Hank Marvin and the Shadows leading up to Jimi Hendrix and, and those, that sort of style. And then along came Floyd. So we have 
Eddie Van Halen and Satriani. Mm. There are distinct styles that were only possible because of those technological technology. Practices. Yeah, yeah. So I'm hoping that Technical somewhere sitting in some dark bedroom, there's a 16-year-old kid, and he ends up with Virtual Jeff, and he comes out with something, you know, that that contributes to that style. Virtual Jeff can it does a very good job of pretending to be a Bigsby or a floating trim on a Strat or a Floyd Rose. It, it, it does a pretty good job of any of those. But the real point of it is, and, and the real benefit or the, or the real attraction to me is, it can do stuff that you could never do before. And, and that, especially, you know, the, the last three or four years has all been about refinancing and getting our own pitch chip and doing designing new features, all sorts of stuff. It lets you do stuff that you can't do any other way, and it's right there on your guitar. I've always thought that there's a big difference between a whammy bar and a pedal on the floor, and that is that the whammy bar is there in any moment of inspiration. You can apply tremolo or a bend. Or, did I say tremolo? Vibrato or a bend mm -hmm. or a, a fake slide. You can do all of that sort of stuff because it's intimate. It's part of the guitar itself and, and pitch and bending and stuff, you know, opera singers and you said, classicals have been doing it. You, you said 16, sorry, you said 16 year old kid in a bedroom, you know, I'm thinking a 67 year old kid, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in a studio, you know, I'm, th I'm, I'm just imagining what you could do with an acoustic guitar, yeah. you know, yeah. The kind of blues you could play with an acoustic guitar, and oh my God, it's just it's endless. Well, imagine yeah. how keen I am to get one to Tommy, and you know, all those. Good on you, mate. <laughs> Gee, many Christmas. Can you think of anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to cover? That uh, uh, you look. There's an old. I'm one of these people who acquires, you know, vintage expressions. And I have some for the recording industry. Um, okay. So if, if, if you're a, a budding home engineer, I can give you the two golden rules. Number one is never bury the money. In other words, when you're mixing, <laughs> make sure you know what the money is and make sure that everybody gets to hear it. And when you're singing, never sing louder than lovely. All right. Never sing louder than lovely. Yeah, you know, playing, scream your head off. Yeah, when it comes to play, well, it doesn't matter if you're screaming your head off. Scream lovely, you know. You musically. Musically. When it comes to playing, there's, there's, there's another old expression which I think fits perfectly with everybody wants to find their own style. Everybody needs to find their own style. You it, it's great to be influenced by all the all the great licks and riffs and players and all that sort of stuff, but use them, you know, meld them into your style. And and what underpins that is is the old expression: um, you have to be yourself because everybody else is taken. That's wonderful. You have to be yourself because everybody else is taken, and I'm taken <laughs> by this interview. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter. I think uh, I think you've loaded us up with some genius inspiration. I'm so glad you were uh, willing to talk uh, shop with us here. Have you had fun? I hope so. I've had fun, John, and and also it's to say thanks to you too, not just for the innocent bystanders and your talent, but for being a a real supporter and a helper. You know, when we had that first day first few days at Nam, you, you were a champion, mate, and I really appreciate that. That was, that was more than an honor for me, and I'm so glad that Ian didn't kill us when we were driving from the parking lot back to the front of the, the Anaheim Convention Center because he forgot that we were on the uh, other That's side that. of the road for a split second. <laughs> Fantastic. You, you, stay well. you know, when we were loading up, we had to, we had to make our way back and forth yeah. between the hotel and the equipment and all that. He was driving. I should have been know, driving. I, I am. I know. He wants to drive, <laughs> and trust me, he's a much better singer and a much better guitar player. <laughs> well, he had no idea there were cars over here to our right. You know, he just just took out the whole yeah. two lanes. You yeah. know. 
I know. Thinking that he was on the right side of the street. Yeah. He's from the bush. Anyway, thank thank you so much. And uh, if you do talk to your brother before uh, before I do, I'm definitely going to get him on. Ray Walker. He's he's one of my heroes. So I want to talk to that boy. Fantastic, buddy. <laughs> you take care. Look after yourself. Thanks so much. Pleasure, John. You're wonderful. Absolutely. My pleasure. Talk soon. See ya. See you. Man. John Hoserstein. This has been The Guitar Life. Our special guest today was Peter Walker. I hope you enjoyed our show. Don't forget to subscribe. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.